Hello, Nigel Craig here again. Uh, I begin with something of an apology. Uh, The previous podcast uh, on the introduction to the Ten Commandments uh, was interrupted by um, the phone ringing on a couple of occasions and then the window cleaner arrived and the dog started to bark. So I apologise for those um, noises in the background. I'm hoping uh, it will be quieter uh, this morning. I hope you're keeping well. Uh, We're uh, going to look in this podcast at the second part of the introduction to the Ten Commandments. Travelling to the northwest used to be fine up to a point, and that point was reached at the end of the old M2 around Money Nick. From flying along a double-lane motorway, we were abruptly reduced to a single carriageway, winding between trees usually stuck behind tractors. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But all that has changed. The motorway now extends to Toome, and they're upgrading the route from Toome to Derry, Londonderry. Uh, The new stretch of motorway is great, although our sat-nav hasn't yet been updated and still thinks that we're driving through fields. Such a difference between the old stretch of road and the new. Yes, there are many similarities. Both of them are roads. Both are heading in the same direction, yet the first was narrow and hard to travel on, whilst the new is broad, open and free. Yet to travel on either road, one must follow the rules. In the previous podcast, um, we began a series on the Ten Commandments. I talked about the place of the Ten Commandments in salvation history. When and why did God give Israel the commandments and what relevance does this have for Christians today? We thought of four things in particular. Firstly, that God chooses or elects a people to be his own, not because of any good qualities, but because of his grace and his free choice. That was likewise uh, the same with Israel and likewise with the Christian today. Secondly, God brings his chosen people out of slavery into freedom. Jesus has rescued us from the world, the flesh and the devil by his life, death and resurrection. Thirdly, having been rescued, the Holy One wants his people to live lives that are distinct from the nations surrounding them. And so it is with us today, leading us on to the fourth point that the Ten Commandments serve as a guide to living in holiness with gratitude and to the glory of God. So what about the motorway? Well, as you know, whilst the single carriageway and a motorway are both serviceable roads, the latter is better than the former. You can drive up to 70 miles per hour on a motorway, and I know some of us exceed this, but you can only do 60 miles per hour on a single carriageway. You can overtake to your heart's content on a motorway, but you need to exercise caution on a single carriageway particularly if there are bends in the road. And best of all, there are no tractors on a motorway. Now today I'd like to talk about the place of the law, summarised in the Ten Commandments, in the life of the Christian. Some people essentially believe that because we are on a new road, we don't have to abide by any of the old rules. But it isn't as clear cut as that. Today I'd like to explain in what ways the Old Testament law no longer applies to Christians and in what ways they still do apply to Christians. 
It's evident from reading the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul, that our relationship with the law has changed. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, you were not under law, but under grace. Galatians 3.25, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And Galatians 5 and 18, if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. Now some Christians have taken these verses and have concluded that we are no longer bound by any of the Old Testament laws, including the Ten Commandments. Some have argued that we no longer need the old written code, as the Holy Spirit now directs us in our minds to what is right and good. This stance is often referred to as antinomianism. The Greek word for law is nomos, so it's against the law. Unfortunately, history has proven that this often leads to licence and permissiveness within the church and then wider society. So the argument that we're no longer under the law, it's right up to a point, but only up to a point. For if we turn to further passages in Paul's writings, we read Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 7 and 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And what about the teaching of Jesus on the Old Testament law? Here are some verses from the famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 19. Do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So how do we resolve this conundrum? Does scripture contradict itself? Well, I'm not prepared to say that it is or it does because God's word is flawless. It's all breathed out for him. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul helpfully writes, We know the law is good if one uses it properly. If one uses it properly. What then is the proper use of the law for the Christian? In what ways are we no longer under the law and in what ways are we still bound to the law? Well, first of all, where the law no longer applies. We are no longer under the requirement of the law for perfect righteousness. Imagine doing an exam where the pass mark was 100%. I would say none of us would make it. And in a sense, that is God's requirement when it comes to his law. Adam and Eve's remaining in paradise depended upon perfect compliance of God's law, of getting 100%. For them, it was actually pretty clear the only thing they were not allowed to do was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that they ate of it, they would die. And we know that's what happened. For us to be in a right relationship with God... 100% conformity to his law is required. If you look at the questions and answers in the Shorter Catechism 39 to 41, the questions asked such as, what is the duty that God requires of man? 
And we see that it's obedience to his revealed will, the moral law that's summed up in the Ten Commandments. But the question is, has anybody met the demands of God's law? Has anybody got 100%? Well, there's not one person except for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second Adam. Having obeyed God's law perfectly, Jesus, the second Adam, does something mind-blowing. He takes my sin and he gives me his perfect record, his righteousness. So I'm no longer under the law in that I'm no longer required to present my own perfect righteousness, which I never could. Instead, I present that of Jesus. You could think of it in this way. Whenever Antonia and I married, everything she owned became mine and everything I owned became hers. Bank account, property, even her families and our name became one. A similar thing happens between Christ and the Christian. By faith, I become one with Christ. And so receive all that is his. There's a very old heresy known as Pelagianism. Which affirms that we are basically good people. That we have the wherewithal within ourselves to keep God's laws. And God, well, he's a bit like a benevolent grandfather. He doesn't worry too much about the details. So long as we have a good stab at trying to keep the commandments. Augustine of Hippo and Martin Luther, amongst others, challenged that teaching in their days. It is by grace that we are rescued, not by works, not by keeping the commandments. For we never could reach the 100% standard. Only Jesus has kept the law perfectly on our behalf. Now there was a halfway house heresy called semi-Pelagianism. And it's still about. Essentially it is that we are brought into God's kingdom by his grace through faith in Jesus. Yet it's up to us to keep ourselves in the kingdom by obeying the commandments and other stipulations. But let's not be led astray. Salvation from beginning to the end is all of grace. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. That is the law of sin and death. The curse for obedience has been, disobedience has been removed from us. Thinking earlier about driving up the motorway, we all know that if you break the speed limit and if you are caught, you have to pay a fine or attend a driver's course. Been there and done that. Worse still, if you drink and drive and have an accident or harm someone, the consequences for all concerned are very serious. God's law must be obeyed perfectly. But we all know that not one of us has kept God's law for not even one day in our lives. Scripture calls this lawlessness sin. Sin is condemned by God and we face the penalty. Here and in the hereafter. However, the amazing news of the gospel is that Jesus comes and he takes that penalty on himself. It's like he pays the fine for us or serves the sentence for us so we don't have to. Except it's much more serious than that. The wages of sin is death. And that's what Jesus experienced in our behalf on the cross. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Consequently, if the penalty has been paid, there's no need for me or for you to pay it. We no longer face condemnation, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. The third way in which we're no longer under the Old Testament law is that we're no longer under the food laws. Sometimes you'll hear people on the radio saying that Christians are selective in their choice of Old Testament laws. You say you're against certain forms of behaviour condemned in the law and yet you eat your pork and your prawn cocktail, both prohibited in the same Old Testament law. Well, I suppose you could say that we are selective, but we've good reason to be selective. As Christians, we're no longer obliged to keep the ceremonial or food laws of the Old Testament. These were specific to the Jewish people in making them distinct from the nations around them. But Jesus himself declared all foods clean, Mark chapter 7, 14 to 23. And you remember the vision that Peter received in which he was told that the Lord had made clean that which had been previously deemed as unclean, Acts chapter 10. The point is, true defilement comes from sin, not from food, whilst true cleansing comes from Christ. The Old Testament ceremonial and food laws were pointing us forward to Christ. We're no longer under the ceremonial or the cultic laws. The book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy are not easy reads, admittedly. Why? Because a lot of pages are taken up explaining in detail the sacrificial system. What animals ought to be slaughtered, why, when, where and by whom. The whole purpose of the sacrificial system is to show that sin is serious and that only a blood sacrifice could propitiate the wrath of God and expiate our sins. That is, remove both. All sacrifices pointed ahead to the final sacrifice, that of Jesus on the cross. So whenever Jesus died, he cried out, it is finished. In fact, the Old Test- the New Testament book of Hebrews goes into great detail explaining how Jesus' death brought the old requirements to an end. So whenever we sin, we don't have to slaughter a lamb, according to the law, because Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins. The end of the ceremonial laws was illustrated so clearly in every baptism that takes place. Uh, When we bring our children uh, for baptism, we don't circumcise them. The old regulation no longer stands. The sign of baptism as the sign and seal of the covenant of grace is open to both girls and to boys. And then we're no longer under the civic and political laws. Since the new covenant is no longer restricted to the nation of Israel, which was a theocracy, but as for people of all nations who believe in Christ, we're no longer bound by the civil and political laws with their various stipulations and punishments laid out in the law. Norman Shields, a former lecturer in the Irish Baptist College, observes in his book, The kingdom Jesus came to establish was not of this world, not ethnic and not geographical. And he did not therefore need to enact civil laws. What he did do was to teach a morality which would govern his followers' relationships, not only with each other, but with all their fellows, and thus the state or community concerned. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. 
Having said that, there are many wise principles set out in the law, which has influenced our laws over the centuries, and I'll touch on these shortly. So, I hope that's been helpful. Um, I've tried to answer the question of where the Old Testament law no longer applies. And we've seen that the requirement of the law for perfect righteousness no longer applies because Christ has uh, become that perfect righteousness for us. We have seen that we're no longer under the condemnation of the law uh, because Christ has taken that curse upon himself on the cross. We're no longer under the food laws. We're no longer under the ceremonial or cultic laws and we're no longer under the civic or political laws. We're no longer under law, but we're under grace. The single carriageway leads on to the motorway. Both are still roads with common rules. So in what ways does the law of God that's summarised in the Ten Commandments still apply to us today? Well, let me um, highlight three things in relation to this. Firstly, the law is there to lead us to Christ. One of the ongoing roles of the law of God is to highlight God's blazing holiness and thereby shine light on our unmistakable sinfulness. It also gives us hope that God has provided a way to deal with our sin through sacrifice and in this way the law still applies. It leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall I say? Or what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law. I would not have known sin. Then Galatians chapter 3. And verse 24. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law. Then Christ died to no purpose. Galatians 3 and 24. Sorry, that was Galatians 2.21. Galatians 3.24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Secondly, the, the law of God still applies to the Christian in that it becomes a rule of life. According to the Catechism. The moral law still applies to those who have faith in Christ and it's often referred to as a rule of life. Thomas Watson, who was one of the most popular preachers in London during the Puritan era, he lived from 1620 to 1686. During his lifetime he wrote a classic work on the place of the Ten Commandments in the, Christ, in the Christian's life. He observed, though the moral law be not the Christian's saviour, it is their guide. Though it be not a covenant of life, it is a rule of life. Though a Christian is not under the condemning power of the law, yet he is under its commanding power. It's not a covenant of life, but it's a rule of life. The Christian isn't under the condemning power of the law, yet he's under its commanding power. Beautifully put. And this is what we often refer to as evangelical obedience how do I know what God wants of me in my relationship with him 
and in my relationships with others? How do we know how to live distinctively from the world around us as God's holy people? Romans 12 and 1, 1 Peter 4, 2 to 4. The moral law is a great rule and a guide. And you can look up your shorter catechism, 39 to 41. Remember those well-known verses in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, we read, Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawlessness, idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and the malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And though the judged in this way, the people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So some passages from scripture there. And then thirdly, the political use of the law. Some time ago, I watched a programme entitled The World's Most Dangerous Roads. One of these made its way through the Himalayas, a single track clinging to the side of the cliff with not a barrier in sight. Now, the commandments are a bit like barriers on the edge of a cliff. The great Hungarian preacher Cherry Kalman, who was minister in Budapest for many years, he gives this illustration. Um, the law is there like a barrier on the edge of a cliff preventing us from falling into the gorge below. Now this is the case for individual Christians and it's also the case for society, even if that society doesn't claim to be Christian. And that's why Luther and Calvin both spoke of the political use of the law. Why do we want to protect human life from the womb to the very end of life? Why do we wish to prohibit stealing? Why do we expect people to be honest in court? Well, many of our laws are based on the moral law summarised in the Ten Commandments. This is part of our Judeo-Christian heritage in the West. Wasn't Rabbi Jonathan Sachs right whenever he wrote, More than anywhere else, human rights owe their origin to the moral code of the Bible, above all to the idea that the human person is in the image of God, the single most powerful idea in Western civilization. God's moral law, summarised in the Ten Commandments, is given to protect us rather than to deprive us. It's given because he loves us rather than loathes us. The Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod writes of the society where God's law is set aside. People tend to imagine that the moment we move away from biblically controlled legislation, we will get more freedom and more tolerance. This is not the lesson of history. What we will get is more inhumanity, more barbarism and more savagery. We will get naked revenge. Now, in the previous podcast, uh, I said that whilst it's helpful to learn the commandments by heart, it's more important that we live them by heart. And it's on this note uh, that I draw our thoughts to a close today. 
having considered the right place of the commandment in the life of the Christian, the question may rightfully be asked, how do we actually keep those commandments? Whenever Jesus considers the commandments, he goes deeper than the surface. Rather than simply say, you shall not murder. Jesus actually addresses the heart of anger that leads to murder. Rather than simply saying, do not commit adultery, he exposes the lustful heart that leads to adultery and so on. In fact, Jesus says that the law is about loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and our neighbours as ourselves. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40 Jesus also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John fourteen fifteen, And later on, Paul wrote, love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 13 and 10 Thomas Watson reflected, the, require, sorry, the commandments require not only outward actions, but inward affections of love. The commandments require not only outward actions, but inward affections of love. He also noted that love is the soul of religion and that which constitutes a real Christian. You'll find those sentiments echoed in the preaching and the writings of the great Jonathan Edwards. Now, whilst this may sound appealing, according to this standard, the Ten Commandments are even more difficult to keep. What then is to be done? But I don't want you to miss this. This is really important. According to the scriptures, we can only keep the law of God as Christians with God's own help. As well as pardoning my sin and justifying me through faith in his son, God also sanctifies me. That is, he starts to change me from the inside out by his Holy Spirit. And how does he do this? By giving me a new heart of gratitude for his salvation and making me into someone who begins to love God and others. Someone who starts to keep the commandments from love. As Romans 5 and 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Consequently, God accepts and rewards our weak and imperfect endeavours, for they are in Christ. And you can see the Westminster Confession of Faith 16 and 5. I mentioned Cherry Kalman, the Hungarian Reformed preacher. He gives us example from life. A young man would like to work in the same place as his father. But the father says to him, Son, if you'd like to work in the same room as me, then I would ask you not to smoke. This is quite different from a sign above the door that says no smoking. The first points to a personal relationship, as if to say, If you'd like to be with me, I would be very happy. So come on, there is room for you. But of course, you won't smoke, will you? And so it is with us. As Christ lives within us by his Holy Spirit, as he begins to renew us from the inside out, the commandment no longer thunders as a threat. You shall not. Rather, it becomes a promise. With Christ's presence and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, 
it becomes a promise. We shall not. Amen.